Ayers on the Road, value-based parenting and life balance ideas from world-traveling family coaches. Here's Richard and Linda Ayer. Hello there and welcome to another episode of Ayers on the Road. Richard and Linda Ayer here. Happy to be with you. We love doing this every week. If nothing else, it keeps us gives us as a record when we're, you know, 20 years from now, Linda, we can go back and listen to Ayers on the Road and remember what we were doing. see how funny we were. Any week of the year. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We definitely have been on the road this week, haven't we? Uh, In the air a little bit. We went to Palm Springs to the fabulous tennis tournament there. Um, We weren't playing, though. We were actually working. Actually, yeah. to make that clear. For sure. Because I have a book on tennis and... I got to meet with Roger Federer, who might do a foreword for the book. Wouldn't that be something? People would buy it just to read his foreword. They'd have no interest in what I had to say about the metaphor of tennis and life, but they would read Roger's foreword. Well, we are not holding our breath on that, but (laughs) he's such a fine guy. I mean, he's really wonderful. He's a family man. In fact, Richard uh, was in a um, media... Yeah, I asked him a pre- I asked him a question. Press I said, conference. "What?" I said, "I hope you play for another five years, Roger. But when you do retire from tennis, what are you going to do? What's going to be your main interest?" And without any hesitation, he said, "My family. I've got four kids. I've got two sets of twins. They travel with me now, so we're with them a lot. But I want to just focus on my on my family." And I thought, "Wow." And my foundation, which is right. a wonderful way to give back. He has a fabulous foundation. And um, those kids are usually there. I mean, at the at the matches, it really is fun to see that not all of them at once, usually two at a time, but they are delightful kids. Mirka is a terrific person. His wife, his wife, Mirka, and, and they live fairly near in Switzerland to our son, Talmadge, who lives in Zurich. So... Who knows, you know, we're just sharing with you our thoughts of the day. And you know, this is Ayers on the Road, Linda. We were on a road the other night. <laughs> I've never been on quite such a road. You were actually scared. <laughs> I've never been so far from civilization. We were driving from uh, Palm Springs up to Las Vegas, where we we're now giving some speeches. And we took a route. I said, I don't want to go on these big freeways. Let's take this other route. And we... <laughs> We went through Death Valley and Needles and some other places, and the road was like a roller coaster. Well, we think. It was just so <laughs> dark, and there were little bumpers on each side, so if you missed this little narrow lane, it, you were bumping along, and then and then it was up and down, up and down. <laughs> it was dark as far as we could see forever. We ran onto about three cars the whole time. It was a lot of miles. I was scared because I, I, we've never been so far from civilization. No phone reception, no, <laughs> no radio reception, nothing. We were out there. We were in the desert. And not a whole lot of gas, and we didn't know how far it was to the <laughs> gas station. So sometimes there's some great adventures <laughs> on the road. But when we got to Las Vegas, we have met some of the most wonderful people here. We're doing two different firesides, one last night and one tonight. For and you familiar with uh, the church terminology, six stake firesides, one last night and one tonight, one on each side of this beautiful big valley. And I'll tell you, when you think of Las Vegas, you might think of 
casinos, but man, there's some wonderful residential areas here. Oh, wonderful people here. Yeah. In fact, we served as a, uh, Richard was a mission president in London 40 years ago, but when we first got missionaries from uh, Las Vegas, we went, ooh, I wonder what this is going to be like. And then they became <laughs> the greatest, greatest missionaries. And then we relished every missionary we got from Las Vegas because they were terrific. There are so many great families here. So we, um, what, we, what we've been speaking on last night and tonight, it's a new title for us, one we hadn't used before. We're calling it the... Uh, the, the skills of marriaging and, and parenting. And we use the term marriaging because we want it to be an active verb, kind of like parenting. And it really is true that there are certain skills. There's no, there's no easy way. There's no quick fix for either marriage or parenting. There, there are skills you have to develop and work on over time. And we, we kind of have a new love affair with this word skill. It, it's not easy but you develop skills over time. And, you know, Linda, you're, you're a violinist, and you know the old adage that to really develop a, a fine skill, don't they say it takes hours? 10,000 hours of work. And, and it is really amazing that it does practice. It doesn't make perfect, but it does make you improve very much. I mean, that's a lot of hours. I, I don't know. I think... There's no guarantee that you'll be a fabulous musician if you put in 10,000 hours, if you really aren't very musical, but maybe so. I mean, yeah, well, you know, I was this book that claims it takes 10,000 hours, one of the examples it uses is the Beatles. And in the theory of the, of the author, the Beatles, you know, before they were popular or had any name at all, they, they went, they, they spent time in Germany. I think they were there for about three years just playing eight hours a day at this club and just perfecting, just perfecting, just honing their skills, developing their songs and so on. And that 10,000 hours, the idea that no skill comes easily. And so we were, you know, in our speech last night and in the one tonight, we're saying, hey, so what are the two greatest skills of all? What are the two skills that will really finally determine how happy you are, how, how fulfilled you are? Uh, who you are. Who you are. They are um, parenting and marriaging are the refiner's fire. We have to admit that. And it really is interesting to think about it as a skill. We don't, we don't very often. And even though we've had lots and lots and lots of practice, there's still a lot to learn. Well, people, it is, Andrew, and we're guilty of this too. I think all of us are. We want we want quick fixes. We want to say, "Hey, give us an idea for parenting that'll help. Give us a give us an idea for marriage. Give us a tip. Give us a little a little secret. Give us a little method or technology, a, a, some kind of a technique." And and it's as though we would expect it to be easy, like there's some magic bullet and you just find it and then <laughs> you're going to be fine. And it's, I think it's better, it's more accurate to think of, of marriaging and parenting as skills that are hard-earned. They're, 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 there's, there's no experience is the only real teacher. You can get ideas from other people, but experience and trial and error and making mistakes and and so on is the only way to ever get that skill. And you know, really, what it comes right down to is a popular word right now in, in the minds of parents and in the parenting world. 
and probably the marriage world too, and that is grit. G-R-I-T. There is a lot involved with grit. I mean, boy, you know, no one had to teach our parents how to have grit because they went through the <laughs> They learned on the farm. <laughs> they learned on the farm. They had to do what they had to do to survive. And now it is not like that. How... We, we really started thinking, how can you give your kids grit? We've been thinking about that and for how a do you, long And time. how do you get grit yourself? I mean, you make an interesting point, Linda, that, you know, I don't, I don't think our ancestors were looking for some easy little method or technique. They were, they were <laughs> in it up to their necks, and they worked hard every day, and they, you know, grit was, was just an assumption. You, you know, had to have grit to get through a day. You did. And they started when they were little. When my mom was nine, I think nine, 11, and 12, there were three kids that my grandpa made a box for behind a wagon, behind a, I mean, on a wagon, behind horses. And you mean uh, a box so they couldn't a fall out? A wooden box so they couldn't fall out. And they couldn't even really get out very well. And So they um, were driving the horses? They drove the horses all day long. They're, my grandma made lunches for them. And they, you know, sat in that box and just wow. harrowed the field all day long. And I don't know if they must have sung and they must have fought. They must have been. But, <laughs> but the they thing had was, grit. <laughs> they had a lot of grit. They didn't complain. They just knew that's what had to happen to make their family survive. So... In a way, it was a lot easier in those days. Well, let's not even go back so far, Linda. Do you think there's a there's a big difference between the kind of grit that most parents today, most of today's parents, developed while while they were growing up, versus how much grit their children have, who are children in today's world? Is, right. Do you think there's a big difference? Well, there is. It kind of depends on where you lived and what you did. We have some friends who put all their boys had seven boys and then one daughter that all their boys they put through a private school in the washington dc area and it was like going to college like when you were 12. it was so highly intense on what had to be done by the next day and then they had early morning seminary for those of you who are familiar with um, the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints all these kids get up if they don't live in a big metropolitan area where there's a seminary they can go to school during the day they have to go early in the morning they get up at 5 or 5.30 in the morning and have a religious class before school we and really then, know that because we happened to teach early morning yes, seminary back and we in the had day a, <laughs> we, we lived there for a while and sent our kids early and that is a huge huge sacrifice that takes a lot of grit and I think those kids really learned that when they were kids coming through yeah. knowing this is what we've got to do to make this work well what i'm what i meant is and i didn't ask the question very well but sometimes in our speech in our speeches we will ask um the parents who are there how many of them had jobs you know when they were growing up outside the home jobs and just about what would you say 90 percent 95 percent raise yeah. their hands we say what did you do oh paper routes babysitting uh, mowed lawns lemonade stands uh, worked in a store you know you get all these things and people are thinking about it and and we, then we say, well, what did you learn from that? Oh, we learned to get up on time, to be to work on time, to be responsible, to work hard. Basically, the bottom line is they learned grit. 
And then we ask them, okay, while you're thinking about that, how many of your children have those kinds of jobs today? Hardly any hands. In fact, we did one meeting not long ago, a pretty big meeting, not a single hand. And, and, we, and it gets people thinking, well, why don't our kids have that kind of work and that kind of jobs where they learn grit? In today's world, and of course the reason is that it's, it's such a different world. I mean, so this is what you pointed out, Linda. They're more busy at school. They've got all kinds <coughs> of things going. Some of the jobs we had as kids wouldn't even be safe to do today. And they and they have a lot on their plate. I mean, it's not like they're... Well, I'm sure some of them are sitting home playing video games. A lot of them. Yeah. But some of them are involved in athletics. They have teams that they're on. Music practice is, is still big. That takes a lot of grit. But there are a lot of kids that waste a lot of time that just did, would not have happened in our generation or the one before. Well, and, and when we ask parents, and you can read this in surveys and other studies as well, what their biggest worry is about their children today, and we've mentioned this on the show before, they say it's entitlement. In fact, that could be the exact opposite, Linda, of the word we're talking about today, the opposite of grit is entitlement. Kids who think they should have whatever they want, have it right now without working, without waiting. And so the big question is that we want to deal with in the second half of the show today, how do parents in today's world, in 2019, how can they create an environment and systems where their children learn grit? So we are going to talk about that. Hang on, because... um this is the crucial part, how we work with entitlement and teach our kids grit. Be we'll be right, right back after this short break. Welcome back to Ayers on the Road. Here's Richard and Linda Iyer. And we're back. We're talking today about giving our kids some grit. G-R-I-T. It is really crucial. Um, Have you ever known a person named Grit? Uh, no. <laughs> I just thought of that. When I spelled it, I, I thought of that. Um, it's interesting. Steve Young, who we've known a little through the years, not much, but the quarterback from the 49ers, his father was named Grit. His name was Grit Young. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Why didn't we think of that? Why didn't we think? You know, well, I can think of one of our kids. We should have named him Grit. Yeah, that's right. And then what I'm all saying. his life, he'd have been asking, "Why is Daddy? Why is my name Grit?" And we said, "Because you've got to learn to do this, this, this." Um, it is a good word, though. Yeah, many of you are probably familiar with the book by Angela Duckworth. It's called Grit. She was a teacher at. Um, you can when our son was there studying positive psychology and he really liked her a lot she's kind of a young woman um, and must have gone through a lot of grit to write a book about grit but um, she uh, she her premise really is that that's one of the most important things we can learn or teach our children so what we're going to suggest to you keeping it simple is that there's really two things you can do as a parent in today's entitled world, two things you can do that are pretty well documented and proven to be helpful in giving children, even fairly young children, a sense of real grit. 
And again, I, I, I think we don't need to define that word anymore, but it means knowing how to work. It means being responsible. It means, you know, getting up and going after things. Well, and it means the opposite of entitlement. On keeping on, yeah. even when you're tired or where you're sick of it or whatever. If it's something that has to be done, just doing it. So here they are. Let, let's talk about them as topics, and then let's get into each of them. One of them is pretty obvious. The other one's probably a little less obvious. And we've mentioned both of them on the show before, but we want to be a little more comprehensive today. One thing that gives your children grit is to quit giving them things. We give our the the, the cliche is we give our kids more by giving them less. When we hand them money, when we make everything easy for them, when we just don't insist that they have any responsibility, that is a detractor from grit. And so the first thing of the two is to set up a family economy where kids have certain jobs to do, and instead of an allowance, which is kind of a handout and an entitlement thing, instead of an allowance, they get paid for the tasks that they remember to do and that they complete. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But the second thing, just so you have them both in your mind, is very interesting and it's a little more counterintuitive. It turns out that kids who know about their ancestors, who know about their heritage and their family narrative, they're the ones that have resilience and grit. So um, let's take that first one because um, we both grew up in homes where we had to earn what we got. Um, this started because my mother used to pay me to practice the violin and the piano. And I, um, she was a musician, she was determined that I was going to be a musician, and I was required to practice And there's some debate about whether kids should be paid to practice, but in this case it worked for Linda. Well, it did, and I, what the reason I really had to practice is because they quit giving me money. They said, in order to earn money, you need to practice. This is how much you'll get if you, if you get this much uh, the whole week. For the whole week, you get your money doubled. And so, um, go ahead, get, get whatever you want. Well, the bottom line of that was a lot of angst because I did practice a lot when my friends were out playing and I thought I was so so underprivileged because I had to practice before I could do anything. And this is like two and a half hours a day. It was a lot by the time I was in high school. Um, but the, the, the whole point is I did it and I also became a music major when I went to the university because that was the thing that I knew the best and I loved it. Well, and I think on a more general level, I think the whole idea of having a family economy is teaching kids to feel ownership of what they have. And if you set up a a simple system where kids have a certain number of jobs to do each week, and they're simple, probably every day, they're responsible for one zone in the house to keep it clean. Maybe they have a job to do with the dishes or something. You decide we can't we can't do any better than you can in deciding what they are, but not more than three or four at the most that they have to keep track of each day. And then if you have a family bank, some kind of a big box or big wooden chest with a lock on it, and kids can have an account in there, even little kids down to seven or eight years old 
younger kids, you got to have yeah. a star chart or some Not little three thing. Not three-year-olds, but three-year-olds can start, you know, earning for right. a little toy that they want or a candy or something. But you know. for real money, wait till they're seven or eight, and then they have an account in the bank. They, they, the money they leave in there earns interest. They start learning to save. You now start turning over the things they want. Say you can, you if you've got enough money, you can buy them. Give them a checkbook or a way to keep track of their money. And just, just so that you're getting away from the entitlement and into the idea of ownership. I can earn money. I can have the money. I can give the money away to charity. I can spend it. I can budget it. It just opens up all kinds of learning. And it gets back to the same kind of grit that you and I learned when we had a paper route or we had a babysitting job or we worked in a store or whatever. We could... We could tell stories about Linda working in the in the drive-in. At the A&W. <laughs> yes, I was a car hop at the A&W. And then when I got really good at that, they put me back in the kitchen. People drove for miles just to have Linda I wait on the car there. hop. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> but it really was a, a good learning experience. But what we're talking about here is skill. I mean, it, it, uh, this system that you may or may not you probably many of you listeners are already doing this in your own way but it's a skill to learn how to get kids to feel like they have to earn what they what they get the money that they have money is a great tool to teach grit and to teach a lot of things um, we had a deal where we said 10 10 20 70 10 percent of what you earn you must give away 20% you must save, but the 70 other 70% you can use for whatever you want. Well, our kids, that was the basic, but they kind of changed their own little thing. We had one kid who's like, I don't need anything. I'm fine. I'll just save. I'll just save 50%. Okay. Well, he liked the interest that the family bank was paying. He didn't want to spend a penny because he knew it would grow if he left it in the bank. <laughs> and it was so interesting. He's that way to this day. Um, our oldest child is so conservative and just saved everything and then the youngest child could not get that money uh, rid of that money fast enough on payday she would just go off and buy buy stuff and and that was just the way they were it was really interesting but and if now, you're it, okay, sorry, sorry i was just gonna sorry. say and now interestingly um it's kind of flipped uh, the oldest is able to spend a little bit more, and the youngest is <laughs> able to save a little more. So you never know, but it is a really good skill to teach these kids. So if you're intrigued by the idea, by this first of two steps to give grit to kids, this family economy, um, if that intrigues you, and if you want a lot of specific ideas on how you might set it up, just go to the website that's on BYU Radio under our show, and it's just valuesparenting.com. And there's a click on there, there's a link on there, or a drop-down menu, The Family Economy. It'll talk about setting up a family bank, giving kids checkbooks, how much they should get each week, what they should be responsible for buying, how they're encouraged to save, how they're encouraged to give to charity, and so on. And see if you, and, and they're just guidelines because we've seen thousands of families set up these family economies, getting away from allowance and away from entitlement. Everyone does it differently, Linda, but it, it's tailored to their own family, so it's great. Now, the second way to give grit to kids is this really interesting thing of a family narrative. And we've talked about this before a bit. Uh, the first time we 
discovered this was from Bruce Feiler, who's a wonderful author and a lot of different directions. He does a lot on the Bible, but he also he's Jewish and and also does a lot on marriage and family. Um, but what he discovered, and we actually got to have lunch with him uh, one day uh, when we were in New York City. It was at Talmadge's graduation from university, and uh, Tal was so interested in what he had to say that he um, he we persuaded him to meet us for a few minutes, and he was so fascinating. This is what he thinks. He said he believes, and we believe too, that the more you tell your children about their family narrative, the more they know about it, the better off they are because they hear the more these resilient stories. they are. Well, they hear these stories about you know who they are, where they came from, and not just ancestors, but your life and your your parents' life, their grandparents. They need to know how these people function and what's going on in their lives and what's happened to them and hard things that have happened to them and good things that have happened to them. It really gives them a lot of grit. Now, it makes total It's just intuitive and obvious that if you tell your kids stories about their ancestors, they, it will help their sense of identity. They'll know where they came from. They'll know who their grandparents are and what the grandparents did, and they'll feel like they've got a an identity as part of a family. But the interesting thing that you're pointing out, Linda, is beyond a sense of identity, it also gives you this sense of resilience. And it's like, hey, if my grandpa could do that, if he could ride a horse and round up cattle, then I can I can take this test at school or I can I can deal with this bully that's bothering me at school or whatever. It's a kind of a passed down identity that becomes resilience and turns into real grit. Well, just to give you a little background on this, the reason this started formulating for him is that he was working with some people who were uh, working with kids in New York City. And um, they, they knew him fairly well and they had him fill out these lists of things that they knew about their family. And then something very interesting happened, very awful, and that is 9-11. And all these kids lived in New York City. They lived through 9-11 and the effect that that had on every, everybody and everything and their lives and their little souls. And they went back and tested these kids again after things had settled. And it was fascinating to see that the kids that did the best to come back from that hard time, to be resilient, to, to bounce back and and uh, seemed to have more grit were the ones that knew the most about their families. Their yeah, family the, the single greatest correlation they could find between kids who bounced back and were resilient after that tragedy and the ones who had a harder time was the single... It's amazing. Of all the factors they were measuring, the single one that correlated most was how much they knew about their grandparents and their great-grandparents. So when you're telling your kids a story about a grandpa or a great grandma or about or, whatever, yourself. or about yourself Your we realized the other day how little our kids know about the, the struggles we went through setting up our first business and so on and you tell those stories and what what's the name of them linda oscillating stories oscillating yeah <clears throat> so for example it's my, not just the good stuff yeah my mother was born to a family of 10 children wonderful family then the Spanish influenza came through that killed more people than the plague and all the wars. Of, I mean, it just incredibly horrible. Half of Star Valley, Wyoming was dying, including my grandmother, who lost two babies the same week. And so what happened, that's such a sad thing. But 
they all bucked up. The girls helped raise the family. The dad was amazing. And they had successful kids who all of the kids turned out to be great people. So, you know, in that oscillating story helps with grit. So we're out of time again or close to it. But Linda, we really, what we really want to say, I think, in concluding today is that grit, that little four-letter word, G-R-I-T, is a powerful goal for parents to have in terms of giving that quality to their kids. And we've just hit the tip of the iceberg today on setting up a family economy and working harder on a family narrative of the ancestors of your children. But there is help on the way. And again, if you'll go to valuesparenting.com and get details on setting up a family economy, get details on setting up a family narrative, we prom- we'll make a little promise to you. Those two simple things, not easy, but simple, will make a big difference in how resilient, how strong, how gritty your children are. So to close, we have to say, quit giving your kids so much stuff <laughs> and start telling stories about your life and the life of your, your family, and it will make a huge difference. We hope you'll join us again next time on Ayers on the Road. See you then.